There's no take two. There's no just a little more purple. Warts and all. You've downloaded the VO Radio Show. During the last political season, there was a classic kind of thing that I get a lot of. It's negative and it's kind of a voice of reason saying, you've been in Congress for 46 years. 46 years is too long. So he sent me a script and he said, hey, Harlan, I need this tomorrow morning by nine. Uh, You know, when I write scripts like this, I always think of you. Nobody does disdain like Harlan. (laughs) 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 That's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. Welcome to the VO Radio Show. I'm Andrew Peters. And I'm Robbo, a.k.a. Darren Robertson. How are you going? I'm very well indeed. And you? Really well, thank you. Really well. Been a busy week for me, so um, I'm glad we're back to the start of a new one so I can catch up. Ah, absolutely. And today's special guest is Harlan Hogan. Now, Harlan is uh, not only a very well-accomplished voice actor and on-screen actor, but also he's the kind of guy that uh, has turned what we consider a dream... Mm-hmm. He actually did it and has a company called VoiceOver Essentials. His flagship product is the Porter Booth. Yeah, I think becoming more and more popular out there. And they are indeed. And this, it, he'll tell the story of how that actually came about, which I'd never heard before. And it goes back to World War Two. Really? Yes. Well, there you go. It, it's it's uh, 70 or 80 year old technology uh, wrapped up in uh, in a 21st century uh, kit. Yeah, I was going to say, certainly some of the stuff doesn't go back that far, I'm sure. <laughs> no, it doesn't. But it, they do actually airdrop via a Spitfire, so. <laughs> Order our special delivery now. <laughs> yeah, should be with you in three weeks via That's right, a exactly. Lancaster bomber. Yeah. yeah. Wouldn't that be a way to imagine waiting out in your front lawn, looking up at your neighbours all wondering what the hell's going on there. <laughs> yes. Indeed. That'd be pretty cool. The Voice for the Voices. This is the VO Radio Show. Now, there's been a bit of activity going on in uh, oh, the US. We love a bit of controversy on this show, don't we? We do indeed. Well, this is, uh, yeah. this is something that came up about a week ago, and I've been keeping an eye on it and asking a few questions. Mm. And um, it's to do with uh, voices for animation or games. Mm, and mm. Uh, what's happened is that it looks like SAG-AFTRA, who for anyone outside the States is the, the big entertainment union, mentioning maybe they'll strike if they don't get uh, what they consider to be fair as far as uh, residuals and also work conditions. Mm. Um, so I've been having a look and I've sent some stuff across to you to have a look at. Yeah. We're coming from either side of the glass here. So, yeah. um, look, we had a bit of a chat about this before the show, and I think you and I see eye to eye on a, a couple of the things, and there are a couple the way we probably disagree. Um, I mean, first things first, um, one, of the, one of the requests, shall we call it, is around working hours and getting a break every two hours. And, and I, I, I'm not even a voiceover artist, and to me that makes sense. I mean, you can't expect someone to perform vocally like that for more than two hours and, and not lose some quality of their voice. I mean, for me, that's important. You can't, that, that's not negotiable as far as I'm concerned. I think that's just common sense. Well, they're actually fighting for a maximum two hour per session. That's it. Yeah. Like no sessions goes over two hours. And that to yeah. me makes, does make sense because, you know, you do get voice fatigue and uh, you can actually do a bit of damage as well. Yeah, that certainly makes sense, that one. Yep. The other one that I think we both agree on too is that they, the employers want the right to fine artists up to $2,500 for showing up late or for me, more controversially, uh, not being attentive to the services for which they've been engaged. Now, That's subjective. <laughs> that, that's what gets me. What does that mean? I mean, yeah. you know, okay, if you're late, that's not good, let's be honest. If, you, if you're a professional voiceover artist and you book for a time at a studio, you be there on time and that's... That's all there is to it. Should you be able to be fined for that? What if you're in a car accident or what if you're stuck in traffic or what if your train runs late or your bus gets a flat tyre or whatever? I mean, you know, $2,500 really, I don't think that's worth it. But the one that really gets me and the one where I think that studio owners should take more of a ownership of the problem, if indeed it is a problem, with voiceover artists being inattentive, the only time for, that I feel that you would become inattentive as a voiceover artist is if there's some disruption to the session. If there's some discussion going on in the studio about how should the voice be, what should the inflection be, rah 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 And then, you know, if it, and a voiceover artist turning around and jumping onto Facebook on their phone in the meantime. For me, surely that just comes down to having a session structured in a way that you're ready to go and, and if you, it is only a two-hour session, that you fully use those two hours. 
I can't imagine a voiceover writer stopping half re- halfway through a read and going, oh, hang on a sec, I've just got to check Facebook. Yeah, exactly. But if anyone did grab their mobile phone, I mean, in Australia, we have the, uh, it's worth a slab. Remember That's the right. old thing yes. if you're on, on set yeah. or something? It's and- not an old thing, trust me. So, um, so look, I, I think, and two and a half thousand dollars, that's ridiculous. Really. I mean, does five minutes in a recording session cost you two and a half thousand dollars? No. But if I was actually on your side of the glass and I saw a talent looking at their mobile phone during a session, I would not be pleased. No, you'd be barking at them. You'd be ringing their agent going, this isn't on. Yeah. You don't even need to write that in a contract. You know, if you're hiring professionals, you'll get what you pay for. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned. So, to me, that's not really an issue. I think, I think the interesting one where you and I could probably have a discussion for days and days is on residuals. My feeling is that in feature films, which they mention in this article that you shared with me, um, and in TV commercials and radio commercials, that sort of stuff, where talent of any type is the focus of the product, I can see where residuals are certainly deserved in terms of voiceover artist or actors or whatever it is. However, I would dispute that with the video game, where you have animation guys, where you have sound designers, where you have game technicians who actually build the game from the ground up in the first place and, you, and someone who also conceptualises it. I would suggest that voice in this case only becomes a very small part of a huge product. Look, I, I think uh, if, if you're actually adding something creatively that is, uh, you know, something of you, then I believe you should be paid a residual, whether it's your voice or sure. your sound design. Well, then, yeah. But, but what I'm, the, I think the biggest issue you've got when you're talking about residuals and also uh, signing off in perpetuity is basically if you look at the sh- what they call the shout outs, um, mm. all those one lines that you pop out during one of these sessions. Now, they yep. could be used in any game. Now, if you signed off in perpetuity, that could turn up anywhere. Rather than asking for residuals, why aren't we saying then there needs to be something firm in the contract that says it can only be used for this game? I mean, my sound design, my lightning clap that I put into video game A could be taken and put into video game B too. Correct. Or, you know, my, my car screeching off or anything, my gunshot. Some director might go, God, that gunshot Robbo made a couple in, the, in that last game was fantastic. Let's just plonk it in here. Yeah. Well, that's um, true. So you should be getting paid residuals as well. Well, see, that's in my contract, though. That, that's where I go to my contract and I go, okay, well, if I'm doing sound design for you, then it's specifically for, you know, the game that you've codenamed Beta. Yeah. It's not for use in any other thing unless you come back to me and we negotiate. And I think that when it comes to voice, that that, for me, is probably fair enough as well. I, as, as someone who's not a voiceover artist, I'm sure there's plenty of people yelling at their iPod right now. <laughs> yes, that's right. Kill him, kill him. That's right. Who the hell is this guy? <laughs> Some Australian guy telling us how to run our business. But uh, look, for me, that's fair when it comes to video games. I, I, as I said before, I think in every other medium, I can understand it. Uh, when it comes to video games, I think it's a little more grey. Okay, well, how about this then? If this, this is another way of looking at it. Say, for mm. instance, if you're going to sign off in perpetuity, mm. which is basically what you're saying if you're not getting residuals, mm. then you negotiate a very, very high fee yes. to compensate. Yep, so if absolutely. they say, okay, we're going to do blah, 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 you yeah. go, okay, well, if I'm going to be these characters, I want a million dollars. Well, I mean, look, let's face it, in, in, in other areas, in commercial music, if I'm doing a podcast and I want to use music from ACDC in my podcast... In Australia, I have to go to, to APRA or ARIA and I have to sign a contract that says, you know, I can use commercial music and I have to pay a huge amount of money. Yeah. And I think that's only fair, absolutely, that if, if these guys want to make these games and, and they want to be able to do whatever they want with the product that you supply them for their game and they want to use it in another game, I think it's only fair that, sure, you guys could make $40 million, $50 million, $100 million out of this game. I want my share of it. Yeah, sure. And so, so guess what? I'm going to charge you a massive amount. I, I don't think that's unreasonable. Yeah, and if they don't, if they're not happy to gamble that, then you say, mm. okay, well, if you're not happy to gamble it, you pay me a standard rate plus residuals. That's right. Then if Absolutely. the thing makes, you know, twenty five million bucks, I want my two point five million or my share of it. Yes, yeah. that's yeah. right. But you only have to pay me five grand up front, ten grand up front. Yeah, whatever it happens to be, yeah. Yeah, I think I don't think you can just say one size fits all, I guess is what I'm saying. I, I don't think you can just say you get a massive fee up front plus we're going to pay you residuals. I don't, yeah. I don't think that's fair. But, you know, that's, that's the thing, isn't it? It's the gamble for both sides. Isn't that why we pay agents, you know? Or well, I don't, but you guys, isn't that why you guys pay an agent to make the best decision for you, for them well, to exactly. negotiate the best deal possible? Why not give yeah. them all the ammunition they need to do that rather than being locked into, well, I can only charge you an upfront fee or I can only charge you 
No, I yeah. think um, I think it has to work both ways. Yeah, you've got to be able to negotiate. Yeah, okay. So we kind of agree on that one. This it's going to be a very interesting debate, though. I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon by the way I read it. No, and also the other thing that I, I set off alarm bells immediately I saw it was uh, the fact that uh, they want to be able to, to find the agent. Because also. they don't put you up for a job. <laughs> is, that, well, is that the one you're looking <laughs> yeah, at? Yes. <laughs> I don't get that at all. That is I'm, just out there. I'm sorry, you didn't like our game so much that you decided not to, <laughs> yeah, not, so we're gonna find not to you. cast for it. So we're going to find you. I think, what? How the hell does that work? <laughs> yeah, that's bizarre. This is uh, getting into some very, very strange territory, I've got to say. And my question would be, does that stand for every artist on their books? So, it, from what I'm reading, and I could this could be uh, this is only one person's opinion, but mm. it appears to be that if uh, an agent decides not to send any of their talent forward to audition for X, then uh, this this um, body have the right to then uh, find the union fifty to a hundred thousand dollars. They're also saying they can take away the what they call like a franchise um, away from a union agent, so there can't be union agents anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Who do these guys think they are? I'm it's, sorry. Yeah, it's like, yeah, okay. Interesting. Yeah, that's that's absolutely nuts, though, isn't it? That's yeah. like me as a tiny little studio in Sydney going, well, you know, unless you guys ring me and say, you know, can, can you come, can you send us a demo of your work? We're going to find you. It's like, how the hell does that work? I'm yeah. sorry, I, I don't get that. I, I can't even imagine the movie industry in the States being that audacious. That's ridiculous. It is quite bizarre. Maybe it, look, maybe it's a misquote or something. I don't know. But the writer's strike back in 2001, or 2000, 2001, the voice industry decided yeah. to uh, go on strike to support mm. them. And they mm. were out mm. for six months. Yeah. A lot of people feel that that strike actually caused a lot of damage to the voiceover industry and allowed the non-union side of the industry to get a very, very good, strong foothold. Yeah. Um, that's what always concerns me. It's like when you say, okay, all the union guys, we're not doing any more video games. Mm. Well, who's going to do it? They're still going to make them. So that's it's right. like, okay, well, you're not going to do it. We'll get this guy to do it. You know, at the same time, I think that, you know, you probably got to stand up for yourself. I'm not sure that going on strike's the way to do it. No. But, but I do think there's some good points in here, and I I think the main thing is two hour limit to the sessions. That definitely, I agree, absolutely, totally agree absolutely. with. Absolutely. So yeah, look, I, I know, I, I agree, I, and I think there's you know there's certainly plenty of points that I think the unions nailed it. I think there's a couple that are probably a bit negotiable though. Yeah, and maybe look, you, you know, you shoot high and then you negotiate down. Of course, you always write stuff in that you're happy to lose, don't you? Let's yeah, be yeah. You don't go yeah. in with your um your A game. That's yeah. How much animation or games, video games are done in Australia? Do you know? I'm not sure. I can tell you that I'm actually working on one at the moment. Ah. I can't tell you what it's called or what it's about. But yes, I am. I'm actually working on a game at the moment for someone. But yeah, I don't think in terms of, uh, in terms of world production of video games, I'm not sure that Australia's up there as a massive percentage of, um, of what gets put out. Well, there's a good opportunity there for for Australia to start doing stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, we're certainly starting to sort of lead the way in technology, and in some cases, and uh, it, it's interesting, isn't it, that there's not a um, not at least a major player from Australia out there. Yeah. Now, talking mm. about innovation, our uh, innovative guest this week yeah. is a man who is known right around, in fact, around the world, really, for his voiceover essentials. Uh, he's a great voiceover actor. I love his delivery. It's got that mm. kind of Almost Aussie, that laconic kind of feel. Yeah, about yeah, yeah. His voice. Yeah. Um, which hopefully he finds a compliment. <laughs> if not, <laughs> if not, he'll never not, come back on the show. That's right, exactly. Well, let's find out, shall we? <laughs> okay, let's go. This is our guest for this week, a man you would know, Harlan Hogan. In a world, In a world where only the best voice will do. Realtimecasting.com. On the line from just out of Chicago. Somewhere, I'm not quite sure exactly where, but that's all right. I'm sure it's a secret anyway. Is Harlan Hogan? Good evening to you, Harlan. Good evening. Yeah, I keep it secret because you know the crowds yeah. that come by, and and the guy that you know tends the moat and uh, the watch station. It just gets crowded, so I, I keep it. Now I live out. In North, I live in North Barrington, which is about <laughs> depending on the day, a half an hour, forty five minutes from the city, or three hours depending on your mood. <laughs> but, <laughs> Um, it's nice out here. It's kind of a little bit of country, and uh, my wife is an avid equestrian, so she has her horse out here, and I go up and sail on Lake Michigan, and we have a wonderful life. 
Beautiful. Uh, I was telling you before, I've you know, been doing did a, on camera, one of my rare on camera appearances. And it was three days of shooting in the city, and, and the weather was beautiful. We shot near, you know, in front of Trump Tower on, you know, uh, on the Chicago River with Lake Michigan. I mean, it was a beautiful city. It really is truly beautiful. And uh, so that was fun. And then the last day was a photo shoot. And I allowed two hours just to be safe. You know, I'll stop at Starbucks or something. Well, they closed the Kennedy Expressway down because there was a shooting or some terrible thing happened on it. And so for three hours, they had the main expressway shut down. (laughs) You're going, uh... But I've got to get to a photo shoot. I suppose that's not really important, is it, officer? No, I guess it isn't. But (laughs) I did manage to to get there pretty much on time. But that's the problem with big cities. You just, you never know. know, All it takes is an incident like that, and you're done. Exactly. And the problem is, you know, uh, unfortunately, people don't have patience. So if you don't turn up for the job, you get there and someone else is in the booth. Luckily now, I'm really 98% from here. So I'm really, even if I have stuff in the city, the agents just say, you know, well, Harlan do from some studio. And 99% of the time they say, that's fine. Once in a while, someone will say, well, we'd really like him to come in. I'm happy to come in. That's not a problem. But it sure is nice not to have to commute. And I don't know how it is there, but parking here has just become crazy. To park and go do a session is going to be around $40 USD in the city for two hours. Yep. Yep. I do have, uh, you know, do have public transportation here, and I do occasionally take it. It's just that first I have to get there from my house and then find parking and then get on the train and go downtown and then get to the studio and then pretty much eat up the whole day doing that. Yeah. So I'm kind of spoiled, I'll admit it. I'm like, let me get in my car and go home now. And technology is changing things, which we'll, we'll talk about later in the interview, but um, we all know you as, you know, one, a voiceover actor, uh, two, well, maybe not so many people know you as an on-camera actor, but also the, the owner of the voiceover essentials. But the interesting thing is, it's how you got a break, because voiceover wasn't exactly where you were heading, was it? No, not really. Um, you know, I, I, I started out as a child, like everybody, but I was a very shy kid, extraordinarily shy. I think a lot of actors are shy, and that, that's why they're they, or performers. You know, they're, they're drawn to being something they're not. You know, whatever. In my case, it was magic. I discovered magic at nine, and just... I loved it. You know, I loved everything about it. I liked, and liked learning it and performing. And that led me to audition for some plays in junior high school and, and then, you know, then in high school and college. And led me to, you know, to want to become an actor. And I have a BFA in theater from a very, very good school called Illinois Wesleyan uh, that has produced a number of people who, you know, work in the business, who work professionally. And so that was really where I was going. Uh, I put myself through college working at a radio station, which turned out to be good training. And I wasn't really confident enough to say, well, I'm just going to go be an actor. I got married. And so I tried various jobs, all of which I failed miserably at. You know, I mean, really, really failed at. <laughs> which is good. Which is actually good. Because then around about, about the time I was 28 or 29, I said, all right, that's it. Life's not a dress rehearsal. You've got to go try this. And if you fail, you fail. It's okay. I've already failed at three or four jobs. It's going to be my pattern. And there were no kids yet. And even though I got a house payment, I was able to do it. And I actually picked up some voice work and thought, boy, I really like this part. Gee, there's no wardrobe. There's no hair and makeup. There's no sitting around hour after hour after hour. You don't have to memorize scripts. I really like this. And, uh, you know, I really made a, you know, aggressive move toward doing as much voiceover as I could. I still did lots of on-camera stuff and little by little wheedled that down as because I had by sheer accident kind of fallen into the golden age of voiceover here in the Midwest. But it was not, I didn't say, I want to go be a voiceover person. I just want to go be an actor. I always say there's two different kinds of people who end up in voiceover, usually with either a radio background or an acting background. But you're one of the few guys that actually have both. You know, I'd love to say I planned it. I didn't. But, yeah, I did. And it really both of those paid off very well. The funny thing is, in the last years when, when the home studio revolution showed up 
and we had to become more and more computer savvy. One of my many failed jobs was as a wannabe, because I wasn't very good at it, computer salesman for Honeywell. Uh, I learned a lot about computers, and I also was sent to sales training school. Uh, which I hated, but after you know later on when I finally you know I hit the block and said I I, I want to be an actor and specifically that I want to do voiceover work, all that sales training really paid off, tremendously paid off for me to have some knowledge today because you don't learn that in radio and you don't learn that getting a BFA in theater. No, you know my mother used to do that. Um, you know she well you, you you never know when it'll come in handy. I hated it when she said that, Andrew, but she was right. <laughs> you know these things. They do it. When I was first starting as an actress, you know, whatever I could get, and I'd managed to sign with an agent. Um, voice work here was, was did not go through agents, nor did the jingle singing, which was huge here at the time. That was just booked directly. So you could actually call on people, which for the sales training came in, you know, great. Uh, but on camera was. And the agent, you know, called me up and said, uh, oh, we've got a, an audition for you. Uh, it's a whole bunch of videos for this accounting firm. It, it really, they, you know, they use quite a few people. And um, we're a suit. <laughs> I had a suit. And um, come on in. So I went in and she said, oh, by the way, it, it's pretty technical stuff, Harlan, on camera. I mean, it's, it's very highly technical. You don't know anything about computers, do you? <laughs> so I went in for the audition. It was all filled with, you know, technical jargon of the day, tree-like hierarchy, syslin.job queue, you know, pretty technical stuff. And I did my little audition, and I walked out, and a young guy about my age, or maybe a little older, came out, and he said, hey, excuse me, excuse me, Harlan, I'm, I'm, my name is Bill Wildhig, and I, and I have to tell you something. We've, we've seen 30 or so guys here today, and you're the only one who sounds like you actually understand this. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, I kind of do. I worked for Honeywell for a while. And he said, were you going to work for us, my friend, a lot? And I did. I did over 100 videos for them. And that got me started. Got me, you know, some money to be able to pursue this dream. Wow. That's a great story. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so grateful. Yeah. But it's funny, isn't it? Because I, I did uh, sales before I got into radio. And, and it was it took me years to work out. That the the thing a successful on air person is a salesperson. Sure you are. Yeah, it's corny, but there's no show business without business. You know, even if you're doing, I have so many friends that do um, storefront theater or community theater. Whatever, you're still going to sell tickets. I mean, it's it's, it's business. Mm -hmm. And you're also one of the few that um, has set up another business, which is voiceover essentials, which is an intriguing story because there's always one thing that leads you to do something like that. It's either somebody comes up with an idea and you think, well, you're not going to do it, so I'll do it. Or you come up with the idea yourself and someone agrees with you that that's a fantastic idea and you take a deep breath and plunge in. Yeah, well, with me, it was a little bit of both and and realized, of course, um, 15 years ago or so, that, you know, this looked like the home, at least from an audition standpoint, we would be auditioning from home. That just made sense. Um, my wife was an agent. That's where I met her. And, and I remember her, how she would say to me, you know, I love all you guys, meaning actors. I love you. I love you. I love you. But when you come in for an audition, I can't get anything done. And I spend time recording people. I was, I'm, I'm an agent. I'm not supposed to be a recording person. So when... MP3 started showing up, and the internet, of course, was you know part of our world. And you realize we all realized we we could send our voices you know instantly. It seemed pretty obvious to me that some kind of home studio would be necessary. And like you, with some radio background, I had set up a home studio, a simple one, you know, for many years actually. And equipment was becoming less and less expensive, better and better quality. The third element of that is that I do. A tremendous amount of political work. Um, that's that's the direction I've gone as I've gotten older, frankly, and and worked hard to get a piece of that work here. And it's it's very good. You're very busy between August first and and Halloween. Um, tremendously busy if you want to be, and I obviously love to do that. So I was finding it difficult because certain things come up where you've got to be away from your studio and you're in a town where there isn't a studio. You're out in Las Vegas uh, out there doing a presentation and you've got to fix a track and the nearest studio is 45 minutes away. 
do you really want to spend an hour and a half doing this? And, and I always believe if, if the talent is not available and there's a price to be paid for the studio, you should pay it. The talent should pay it. That's, that's only right. It's not their fault you're not home. So, you know, I'm thinking there's got to be a way to record in a hotel room or, or it's a guest house or wherever you happen to be. And it's problematic, as you know, it tends to have the rooms, you know, that are unacoustically treated, have that rumbly, mumbly, you know, roomy, boomy sound. That has always been the problem. So I'd heard about an idea dates back to the BBC during World War II when they would try to record in bad recording spaces and bombs going off and God knows what was going on. They would get a crate or a box of some kind and stuff uh, a blanket, a mattress, whatever they had, and put the mic just barely into that open crate. And using a, a, you know, a mic with a cardioid polar pattern, the microphone hears an acoustically treated sound, space. You know, if the microphone were inside some kind of enclosure with acoustic foam, and you know, you didn't have to be in a human-sized room. And so I started experimenting with that. I was going to you know stores and buying things and trying things out, and came up with a combination that worked. And I wrote a little article to be nice. I know that that's hard hard to believe, Andrew, <laughs> just to be a good guy, and also because um, Jeff Fisher and I had written two books at this point for voiceover people, how to set up a home studio. Jeff is a wonderful writer and a fabulous audio engineer. I'm a pretty good writer and a voiceover guy. And we had, he had he did, similar to what we're doing, he had interviewed me for a book. And I said, you know, I'm thinking about doing a book that's, you know, not dumbed down, but is not technical and shows a voiceover actor how they could take maybe a closet in their home and what kind of microphone to buy and what kind of software. And so we wrote these Two, two, ver- two versions of the book together. So I kind of said it. I said, hey, here's how you can record on the road on the cheap. Here's how you cut foam. Here's how you put it together. And lots and lots and lots of voiceover people and some production people wrote and said, that's a great idea. That's wonderful. Thank you. And some people, quite a few said, where can I buy one? And I said, we, we really can't. Uh, and a lot of people said, well, I want to make one of these, Harlan, but the good acoustic foam in my opinion, Oralex or Prime Acoustics are the best you can buy. You've got to buy in big sheets, and they're expensive. It's a hundred bucks for a sheet of this stuff. If you buy the junk, it's junk, right? So you know, get together with some friends. You can make four or five of these things. Anyway, I, it proves that I'm not totally stupid because at some point it occurred to me, you know, if people really want to buy one of these, maybe I should make up some and see. So I made up ten. They sold instantly. And so this was all put together. I made them here at home. And after that, I stay, you know, got a, you know, people involved and designed a, profession, you know, a larger version, the Pro, and a smaller version, the Plus, that are made in China specifically for me under my brand. We've sold thousands of these things all around the world. And that led me to the next conclusion that, you know, more and more people have to do a home studio. They, they have plenty of places you can buy audio equipment on Amazon. You can buy it all over the place. But what they don't have is advice from a fellow voiceover person. And so I started an online store, which is through Amazon, called voiceoveressentials.com. And that has turned out to be frustrating sometimes because it's retail, but fun, exciting for me. And learned a whole new business. I'd learned how to make stuff in China, how to import it, how to brand it. So you can teach an old dog new tricks, and I'll be you know, perfectly blunt, it, it's a profitable business, and people seem to really like our stuff. And I think part of what they're buying is, is you know, advice and the knowledge that the person they're buying this from is a voiceover guy and makes his living that way. So it's stuff that actually works and doesn't cost a fortune. The voice for the voices. This is the VO Radio Show. It's funny because I'm sitting here outside in the control room. There is one of your portable booth pros, um, which I have I cart everywhere with me when I'm away from here. And I have to say, it's been uh, an absolute godsend. It's um, saved me on many occasions, which is great. And that's a spot, you know, that's for sure. And the other thing I find interesting is you're um, manufacturing out of China, running that, because I know how difficult that can be as well. Yeah, it can be. You've got to really vet the people you're using. and They can do wonderful work. Um, they just have to understand that, you know, I want top of the line. I want it right. You know, I don't want it cheap. I want junk. Uh, microphones are pretty easy to make there. 
headphones, same thing. And I could look at like my headphones and figure out what don't I like about the headphones are out there. What I don't like plastic on my ears for openers. How come I can't have headphones with leather? How come I can't have a set of headphones with memory foam if I wear glasses so it'll wrap around my glasses? How come I have, if I want a coily cord, it's dangling over my copy, but at the same time, I like the stretchy part. Can't I get a coily cord that has a, you know four feet of straight wire? And, and that's the way I look at a product, and, and that's, that's how my headphones are. Um, that's pretty easy. The foam was really a problem, and, and I, I just didn't want to use anything but proper acoustic foam because it, it sounds different, and it also holds up you know, way different than cheap stuff. So the first booths, I actually shipped Oralex, which is made in Indianapolis, Indiana. So that's you know the, the great Midwest. I mean, that's a few hundred miles south of here. And we had a terrible time getting it into China. We figured out together, collaboratively, that we could ship it out of Spain. What? <laughs> in, yeah, literally, yes. We could get it to Spain and get it into China that way. Because the Chinese want to charge a huge VAT on it, you know, a VAT tax. Do you have that there? I'm not sure. Yeah, we have, we have, yeah, we have a goods and services tax, yeah. Yes, and, and theoretically... Um, you would get that back when the product is made and, you, and it ships out. Well, the truth is you'll never see it again. There's just no way to deal with the Chinese government on that. You can fill out all the forms you want. <laughs> You're not getting it back. Yep. Yep. So uh, as it turns out, Orlex, uh, the president of Orlex and I became very good friends, and he really wanted their stuff in our portable boots because, you know, it's good ads for Oralex because, as you know, and it says powered by Oralex. Yeah. So we came to a, a meeting of the minds on that, and at that time, they were preparing to manufacture in China because, like every manufacturer, certainly in the States, that's something you've got to face. And also that that's a huge market. We think of oral, uh, of acoustic foam as being just something for recording studios, but uh, houses of worship and restaurants and theaters and home theaters are huge, of course, everywhere, uh, need that. And so that's really a bigger moneymaker for companies like that than, than just we little lonely guys that set up a studio in our closet somewhere. So they started manufacturing in China. Now it is made in China. It, it meets Oralex's specs, and uh, that became easy now. The, the plants are not too far away. But, but you're right. Yeah, talk about learning curve. I mean, I've, I've enjoyed it. I've got three people who work with me, and uh, it, this has been just a kick. Like, wow, I've actually got products I've put out. <laughs> I mean, go figure. Yeah, yeah. So do you manufacture all of the products, or do you actually just rebrand existing product? Uh, I don't rebrand anything on our on our, our homepage of stuff that has my name on it. That's, that's all from scratch. I had some ideas, improvements on microphone for voice, not for singers. That stuff's all made for singers. You know, it's all made for public address. It's made for different things, and things I, I, I would want in a mic if I could design from scratch. I called three companies that I respected. And I didn't want a $3,000 microphone. I wanted something that would be 300 maybe four. You know, something affordable, three yeah. 400 maybe. Of the three companies, two of them said, not a problem. Just uh, check out our line and we'll put your name on it, which was not really what I was looking for. MXL, who was really building their reputation at that time, and I actually said, will you rebrand something? Because I like such and such, but I'd like to make some changes. And they said, we will not do that. Um, we will build a mic for you. You tell us what you want. We'll give you our suggestions, but, but we're not going to take one of our things and stick somebody's name on it. I said, you got my business because that's what I wanted to hear. Yeah. And they, they've been fantastic. I mean, absolutely fabulous. And people love that mic. I love that mic. I mean, I've got some pretty expensive mics here, but I like, I like my $299 one better than most of them. So, so what were you looking for when you were looking at a voiceover mic? Because, uh, you know, there's so many microphones out there and, Every voice is different. And that's an important point, and that was one of the things I, I wanted to do, and I do still do. It seems outrageous to me that you can't audition a microphone. For a while, guitar centers would let you at least take some mics home, you know, try them out, because everybody does sound different on every microphone. There's not one that's just, you know, sounds the same on everybody. I don't know. I've been told, oh, it's health reasons or something. You can't return a mic. I, that makes no sense to me, but I've always sold that mic, and I still do, where you've got 30 days to try it out, make sure you really, really like it. If you don't send it back, no questions asked, not a problem. Mm. And 
I think that's the only way to do business because, and we don't get very many back, but if it doesn't sound the way you want it to sound on you, then, then you shouldn't be stuck with it. I mean, I've bought a bunch of stuff here I've had to put on eBay. Uh, sometimes, not that they were bad, but I'd get a mic and think, well, you know what, this is pretty much the same as blah, 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 and I don't really need it. Well, now I've got to cut the price and get rid of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I really love... Uh, the Norman U87 and uh, that's one of the best mics out there but it's $2,800 uh, and then you've got another $400 to buy the, <laughs> to buy the shock mount that's a lot of money yeah. uh, you, know, you could say well, there's a point in, if you're making your living and you're making enough money that's fine but there's a whole lot, ton of people who make a little bit of money and, and, and they just can't afford that so what we really worked with was simplicity, not a lot of switches and roll-offs and all kinds of nonsense on it, you know, because that's just going to intimidate people. Uh, we softened the cardioid pattern slightly uh, so that it is a much better mic, on, on, particularly on females. There's less, less proximity effect there is on most cardioid mics. And uh, in case somebody's listening doesn't know what that means, it means the closer you get to a mic, the more bass is enhanced and if you know how to work a microphone like you do and i do you can really you know have a pretty thin voice and get a lot of depth out of it if yep. you don't know how to work a mic which which is true for most people today it just sounds muddy and women in particular when they get on a, a club and see we're almost always working close mic and voice over anyway and then in a home studio even more so um because we want to mitigate as much sound so that was one of the major things. I also wanted to make sure that it had, it came with a shock mount and it came with a good microphone cable and my cables make a huge difference. They don't, on USB, digital doesn't really matter much, you know, a decent USB cable is a USB cable, but a good mic cable can cost quite a bit of money. So I made sure that they had a good microphone cable as well and uh, that's been one of our most successful products. But yeah, they're not, I, I don't want to rebrand things. It's, it's interesting with microphones, though, because that it, most forums in the voiceover industry, that seems to be the number one topic. What is the best microphone? Yeah. And yeah, there's a point where, you know, maybe you like, you know, if you get into microphones, I know you are, and, uh, you know, I've got a, a, U, a U47 here, which is a tube mic mm. from the late 40s. Oh, man. Oh. I, I keep saying I should sell it because it's worth a lot of money. And, and my wife, God love her, always says, yeah. Yeah, but then you wouldn't have it. <laughs> she's she's right, you know. She's right. And she because it's a piece. It's a beautiful thing. I don't use it much, but it's just you know piece of history and the sound. And but what makes you know a mic good for you? I had a, a salesman that wanted me to try a Bronner. Have you ever seen a Bronner? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're talking big money, and 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 big even bigger money because it's it's. I guess this is equivalent to maybe somebody that plays violin or flute or something. You know, professionally. But you buy the Bronner, but if you, if you really want to use that microphone properly, then there are a couple of named people who tune them for you. So Celine, Celine Dion uses one, you know, and it's tuned to her voice. Wonderful. Yeah. So we're looking. He, he said, oh, I really like you to try this. And I said, you know, really, you know, it's, I don't sing. And, you know, and some of those dynamics are, you know, they're not the same as singing. And you're not on stage with 52 backup singers and all of that either. We're talking very intimately most of the time, even if we're shouting something, you know. Yep. And, he, and, and he kept telling me, you know, so anyway, he said, well, you got to try, please. You know, let me send it to myself. Okay, so it's like a $7,000 mic. <laughs> and, I, and I get it, and I hang it up, and I hated it. Oh, really? I'll tell you why, because it's too good. It's, it's, it's designed to be sung into, but I could hear my jaw opening and closing. Yeah. Your tongue moving, it's too good in, in that sense um it's not for voiceover work at all it just, it's just not good it's fine for celine to have all that those sounds being reproduced because you don't hear it when you're singing yeah. yeah so it's a wonderful microphone if you really want accurate representation exactly how something sounds but we don't always want that <laughs> so um I said, said I, you know i'm sorry really it's just it's not for my you know but oh yeah i had to send it back to him so now I've got to insure it for seven grand. <laughs> it cost me a fortune to send the thing back because I was scared to death it would get lost in shipping. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because I've got a, a few different microphones here. And um, one company that I, I really love, actually, uh, they are quite accurate, but 
but uh, it's a company called Microtech Gefell. Yes, I have been on a couple of those mics, yeah. Yeah, and I've been a fan of theirs for well, many years. And I was introduced to, to them by um, the guy that brings them into Australia in Melbourne. And so he, he sold me one of the um, the small Microtechs, which I use quite a lot. And then for promo work, I use a, a shotgun. So Yeah, me too. It's amazing how much I do on a shotgun. But see, there's a good example of I have, I have I'm going to make this, Really much a statement, a hundred percent statement. I have yet to hear a female voice on on like a, a four sixteen or road shotgun that sounds good. It just doesn't flatter the female voice. It, it has a, but it's great for promo, and I use it on political stuff a lot, particularly if I'm doing, which is most of the time, honestly, an attack ad or a negative ad. It's got that bit of compression built into it, and if you really want to sound kind of dark and ominous, it, it's just there. Yeah. yeah. Any of the shotguns actually uh, are great for travel because they were they were built for location sound. I mean, you really can't. I mean, you can hurt them, but I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. speaking about being on sets, I mean, you see the way the, the shotgun mics are handled by a guy on the end of a fishpole when you're shooting on camera. I mean, these things are tough. <laughs> yeah, you know, if you're traveling with that mic in your carry-on, a lot of times they'll pull it out because it doesn't look like a microphone. He yeah. pulled it out and he said, what's this? I said, the microphone. And he starts singing into it like, you know, Bing Crosby or something. <laughs> like, you know, that's a $1,200 mic. I just kept my mouth shut. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, because they see a, a metal tube with wires in it. And they go, uh, what's this? Yeah. Technology has certainly played uh, a major role in the way we work now. But also a lot of things have gone online, like your shop is online. Auditions are now done online. Even if they're to your agent, they're still, you know, being transferred via email. How do you see online affecting the voiceover industry as we move forward? It's the yin and yang. You know, that's how all of this is, of course. You know, we can work the world. Um, I know you do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've got some of my best clients uh, in Germany and Switzerland and Spain. Do a lot of commercial work for them. Uh, they're just, you know, to be an ISDN. They're a delight to work with. They, you know, they'll have a French speaker and a German speaker and an England. I'm their English guy. Um, so that, I mean, that's good. The downside is we're competing against the world. Guys here, you know, uh, you know, who would specialize in quote unquote accents, you know, English or whatever, and they would they would do their Australian accent, which you would probably go, oh, you're. God, that's horrible. Or, or you'd say, oh, that, well, you know, I know with the English, so, well, that's a Christchurch versus that's three bells. Oh, no, that's not a proper English accent. That's, uh, you know, this, just like we have the same thing here, Midwesterners in the States, and that is a good thing for voiceover, tend to have the least accent, the most neutral versus Southern or East Coast, you know, where it's very obvious, or Philadelphia or Chicago. If you really live in Chicago, they, I mean, it looks like I grew up on the south side. That's how people talk. It's there and them, and that's what you do. And you go by somebody's house. I'm going by Joey's, and then we're going to go out get a pizza. That's how they talk. Yeah. Um, but generally, the Midwest is pretty neutral on, on accents and stuff. So, you know, for example, those, those people who specialized in doing accents, well, today, if I wanted an Australian accent, I'd call you. Yeah. <laughs> Bingo, right? I mean, done. Done, done, done. Or English or whatever. And same thing, you know, I know there were people in Europe who could do pretty good English accents or American English. But now, you know, with at least some of my clients, go, we got this guy in Chicago. So that's the good size. But but we're competing against the world. We're competing against, at least here in the States, uh, uh, with people who will work, obviously, non-union to start with and are working out of a home studio and are perfectly willing to work for very little money. And aside from very little money, uh, more onerous, not aware of the fact that with the commercial work, at least, you have to be careful about what you do because, you know, once you have done a spot for, let's say, Ford Motor Company, you're not going to work for the other motor companies. And a lot of them don't realize that, so they, they get a commercial, whatever it happens to be, and don't realize now now they've got a huge conflict and they can't do another grocery chain or another retail chain. There's a site online called Fiverr, and there are some people there who will do a, 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 you know, a voiceover for five bucks. I know. It's, <laughs> it's just tragic. 
It is tragic. Well, you probably didn't have this in radio. In here, in the States anyway, in radio, there was always this this, this funny thing. In local radio, was a dollar a holler. You know, (laughs) buy a commercial, it's a dollar a holler. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And it hasn't changed. And because all those people say, oh, you know what? See, that's my introductory rate, and next time they'll pay me more. No, you know, the world doesn't work that way. You're establishing a brand, and you're worth five bucks. And maybe next time they'll say, "Could could you do two of those for five? (laughs) <laughs> so that you know, that's that's a problem. The unions are under great pressure, and that's you know, part of that is this this instant availability of a huge pool of people. Some are awful, but some are perfectly fine. Yeah, and you know, and I mean, I hate to say this, but a lot of times. In any business, sometimes it's good enough. The VO Radio Show is produced in the studios of Voodoo Sound. Radio. TV. Sound design. Find it all at voodoo-sounds.com. What does the union do? You know, like for, for me, it's, it's been difficult because we know that people want everything to be really super quick and super easy. So if you're a producer, you find Harlan Hogan, okay, book him in, can he be ready in an hour, how much? But the problem is it doesn't work that quickly because you've got to raise contracts and all this kind of stuff when you're talking union. So everything kind of just goes back to the 50s as soon as it comes to payment. Well, it does, and that's actually where, where that where that all came from. I, I've spent some time being active in both Screen Actors Guild and AFTRA here uh, on the boards because I felt that that was worth my time. And I, I'm very aware of the fact that the people, by and large, who were working on those boards were not actually working much. So I thought, you know, this, this is kind of stupid. These are, these are really well-meaning people who have the time to do this. And, and you know, everybody else, oh, I'm not going to do that. I'm too busy. Well, who's making decisions about your career? Don't you yeah. want that to be people who are working? And I don't mean just to make more money sometimes to say, no, no, that's too much. You can't, you can't charge that for a corporate narration. You'll kill my business. You know, so you, you need that perspective. So I spent quite a bit of time doing that. And the, the idea here, at least, of being paid residuals on, on commercials really came from, particularly TV, came from the fact that People did television commercials when television arrived about 1946 or 47 and by the early 50s. They did them live. You know, it was like doing a film shoot. So you went down to the studio and put on pancake makeup and bright lights and a a loud jacket and did your car spot or whatever heck it was and they paid you. Um, Suddenly, that could all be, you know, not only filmed but videoed later. So when they were trying to find fair payment, the, the, the things that were being considered was, well, number one, you should be paid you know, for the session because it's like going in and recording. And the second one was the conflict, that once somebody saw your face or heard your voice and you were representing a product or service, they would tend to identify you with that and your, op- your opportunities for further employment, certainly within that specific product were greatly reduced and it certainly is true on camera and it really goes across the board at that point because if you you know are doing uh, let's say an insurance company here and uh, one that leaps to mind is a company called Allstate and they have an on-camera guy named Dennis and he's wonderful Dennis Hassard I think his last name is this charming wonderful guy and he's their spokesman he's not a celebrity he's just their spokesman and he does a great job, and he's had that account for a number of years. Eventually, of course, we all lose them, right? <laughs> you know, yep. I mean, it's, different, it's a different creative, a different thing. And I can tell you right now, if you walked into any casting director in the United States, the first thing they're going to go is say, they're going to say, oh, that's the Allstate guy. And that's going to last a long time. So whatever money he's being paid, he's, he, he's being compensated properly to get residuals because his opportunity to do other employment are limited. And that's the whole concept. But now, with the Internet, I, I wish I knew. I, 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 I think about this a lot. Um, I've gotten a number of things lately. I, I had never heard the term pre-roll. Have you, have you heard the term pre I mean, other than pre-roll when I was recording, and they would say we're going to pre-roll the film. No. Pre-roll is, is on the Internet. You know, when you click on a site and there's a little ad that runs, mm-hmm. this, this is a pseudonym for commercial. Oh, it's just a pre-roll. No, it's not. It's a it's a fifteen second commercial, and you've got a conflict. 
you know, they're hearing your voice or they're seeing your face. And they're paying next to nothing for these things. It's a real problem. I did see something that I think is encouraging. The Chicago Federation of Musicians, or I mean, whatever, I mean, exactly, you know, CFM or whatever it is, has always been rather famous for having really, really, really tough rules. When records came in to radio, you had to use a union member because the musicians, of course, were losing their shirts. So the, the members of that union would control playing the records. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And so you'd go into like a, a WG on a big station here, and they were like the firemen on the, you know, the, the firemen on the diesel engines, on diesel trains. The firemen were the guys, you know, that, that shoveled the wood or the coal into a steam locomotive. And when that stopped, the union still wanted to have somebody as a fireman on the diesel locomotives because <laughs> they had power. It was a very similar thing here. And then when, when records started to go onto carts, you had to have a union member transfer that. And eventually it shot them in the foot. I mean, it was so onerous. It was a ridiculous waste. And, you know, eventually that all went away and DJs played their own records or played their own carts. And so they, they have had a long history of trying to preserve the old days and now, of course, they are slammed in terms of music. Mm -hmm. You know, musicians have made a very good living playing tracks for commercials and movies and all of these things, and the singers as well. I was pleased to see this. SAG has an initiative to try to get the, the commercial work back, uh, which I'm pleased to see. And the Chicago Federation of Musicians has done an outreach. They've looked at what the rates are that are paid and made a conscious decision that, look, we have to change too. The world's changed. And we'd rather have our members make less money rather than none. And I, I can embrace that. I get that. And so they are going out. They're, they're modeling. The rates are a little higher, but not that much more than what these people are getting, you know, on stock music and stuff and saying, we want to try this for a year and experiment. We're in this together. And they're, uh, as I understand, they're, their executives, you know, who work there are, are going out to ad agencies very much like you did, went out and, you know, and reached out to people. Yeah. And, have met with the large agencies in Chicago with them saying, you know what, we couldn't live with that. We could, we would rather have professionals. We spend, we waste a lot of money when we hire, and that's also true in voiceover. We hire people that really can't do it. It's not all doom and gloom, but you know, I agree with you. It's this is, you know, this is a, a tough thing for the unions to deal with, but. I don't think it's an impossibility. It's just not, it's not easy. In Australia, our union rate card is very simple because we don't have pension and health that we have to tip into because we get that through our taxes. So that simplifies things a lot. But having said that, the agent still gets the money from the producer and they take their 10% and send you the 90% for the job. So the, the agent actually takes care of the money. What I'm trying to get my head around in America is that why do the union agents not take control of the payments so you don't need a paymaster and it just simplifies the whole thing which means you can actually adapt that really simply to an online process yeah i agree i think some of that yeah you know, the uh the whole signatory thing uh, they have to be signed and you can only use you know that it, that, that harkens back to another time the clothes shop you know that you don't even see like in the automotive business anymore or even even you know unionized shops they've got to make some changes that is a problem with having done it for a long time is I can look at something and go, you know, that was a big account. This would have paid you a lot of money, and now it's not. Because I, I see the non-union rates, you know, from agents I have that do both, and they send everything out to their talent. I mean, most of it I can't do and won't do, but I think, you've got to be kidding me. But that's my perspective, because I've been around it so long that I have an idea of what that's worth. Well, it may not be worth that today, truthfully. It is too complicated. I have to agree with you on that. Uh, or it's just, you know, you got to sign this and you got to do that. I'm like, I couldn't believe the paperwork on this on-camera commercial. The voice the for the voices. This is the VR Radio Show. Anything about the shoot or what it was for or anything else, which I understand. Okay, yeah. that's fine. And then I'm incorporated, so that's that form, and there's this form. There's a state of Illinois thing because the state was getting, gives some credits back to film companies to film here. 
okay, whether that's a good idea or not, you know, so there's that form, and then a whole thing about, you know, your ethnicity, and another thing, it's like buying a house, like, I'm just, I'm just working for three days here, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. You know, which I never see doing voice work, if there's a contract, you know, sign it, and you fax it back to them, or, you know, scan it, and email it back to them, and you're done. What will happen? I do hear uh, we some some missives from a couple of guys in particular who are non-union, and they are now. I think how do I put this nicely? Well, they're figuring out. Oh, maybe we really screwed up, <laughs> and and they're kind of t- you know I've stayed out of it. I've got plenty to do. <laughs> I don't want to get involved with any of this yeah. stuff, but I'm reading this thing, and, we, and we've all got to band together, and we can't be working for these terrible rates that we find on these online sites, and I'm thinking, you know, guys, there's a union. It already exists. Yeah. And it isn't perfect, but, you know, in many ways, you did this to yourself, and mm-hmm. now you're realizing what you did, and to form another one is not going to be a good idea. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, as far as union uh, members are concerned... They should actually be tabling this with the union and saying, "Look, this is an issue for us." Right. I've maintained it forever, and in, and in union meetings over and over again. I'm, I'm my company, Wordsworth Incorporated, is signatory to the to the agreement. So there's a certain amount of stuff that is, in theory, non-union that I can do, as long as they've got the budget. So if somebody says, hey, well, I, "You know, I want to run this for a year," okay. Um, what would you like to do? Well, I want to run this in Cleveland, Ohio, blah, blah, blah. I said, that's fine. I'll have Daryl. It's my paid master. Uh, get back to you on, on the fee. And she'll go through and say, okay, a year, that's four cycles. And do, 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 like you're saying, it's, you yeah. know, with everything, with the union and the town, you know, agent, it's, you know, 1650 bucks. And 99 times out of 100, they're fine with that. Yeah, yeah, that's all they see. Now, behind the scenes, she files the health and retirement fee, pays the agent, pays me, because it's third party. You know, it's a corporation, not me. Some of them corporations employing me. And I can do in political stuff. A lot of my stuff is done that way. The union gets its health and retirement, which is great. That's what they should get, because that's what, you know, helps us have our, our benefits. And... um you know, whichever agent it is gets their 10%. And, but you're right. I make it simple. If I said to those people, oh, well, you're going to have to sign a union agreement. First of all, like, for example, McDonald's is a big client of mine. They're not signing any union agreement for anything. Not yeah. happening. Yeah. They'll do a third party. But, you know, paymaster and this and that. And, and it, is, it really isn't the money usually. It's the complication. And that has been a problem for 36 years for me and I managed to make it simpler for people you know what, Sheldon Smith is in Washington and he's, he's done a great job he goes around the country now explaining how you can turn a lot of non-union stuff into union exactly the way I've done it at one time the unions were, they were they were questioning every time I you know something would come in from Wordsworth like well what, what are you doing you know is it a real job yeah it's a perfectly real job and we're getting scale or over scale now they've embraced it. Now they say, yeah, that's, that's, we're fine with that. And he teaches a little workshop on how to do it. And the first thing he says when somebody says, oh, I got a non-union job, he says, well, what do you want to accomplish? And I know Sheldon's had great luck, luck the same way. Once people realize, oh, we can work with that. Now, if they say, well, we want to buy this in perpetuity as a buyout and we're never going to pay another dime, we say, thank you very much for calling. I can't do that. And you can't. You know, you can't bend the rule on that. But usually it's not that. It's, you know, I want to run this for a year on blah, 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 or I want to do it for six months. But they just want a bill, a bill, right? Just like you and I do. If somebody does some work here, I just want to pay them. <laughs> yeah. sign a con- I'm not a doom and gloomer like some guys my age are about the unions. I, I think they'll survive. But like everything, you know, it's, 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 it's how democracy is. It's construction and deconstruction and, you know, it keeps changing. Yeah. Interesting. So my final question for you after your 36 years, what has been the biggest thing that's actually you've embraced or has made a fundamental change to, to the way you work in this industry? I think the home studio... Um, is the most radical, you know, tangible thing. And it's just, you know, changed everything about it. I do miss going to the studio. I miss the people. I miss not being responsible for stuff. 
was so nice to just walk in and hey, how are you? Hi, Harlan. How are you? We've got you know it's uh, you know seven introductory things, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome blah blah blah. You know, here's some water. I read them. I said, I'm gonna read three in a row. Okay, three in a row, three in a row, three in a row. Can you go back and do number six? Yeah. I'm going, okay. Well, thanks so much. That's so nice. <laughs> you walk away. Yeah. You don't edit it. You don't do anything. I love that. And also, I mean, I, and I think this is unfortunate. So many people in the business now have never had the joy of that camaraderie, but more importantly, learn from the audio engineers. Because that's how I learned how to work a mic and how to read and, and uh, you know, the fact that, that in order to be funny, if you're going to do a funny script, you have to be totally serious. Yeah. But, key to commenting. If it's well written, if you're totally certain. Those th- things that producers say to you, you know, and, and the audio engineer would say, Har, you, you, that mic, you gotta get you gotta get about a foot away from that, you're too close. You know, we they don't get that anymore, which is too bad. There's nobody to teach you that if you don't go into in the booth. So, so the, the most tangible thing change is that and the second one of course is media diversification. You know, we had three networks here and and Back in the day, if you had commercials running on those and you got paid every time they ran, I mean, there was a lot of money being made. And, you know, cable came along, and now, of course, all the streaming came along. And, you know, it's, and the celebrities came along, at least here, mm-hmm. so that they were more than willing to do commercials, happy to do commercials. And so a lot of the off the good stuff, if you will, you know, went to celebrities perfectly happy to take that money. And the singers, jingle singers, had the same thing happen where somewhere along the line, I've always been told it was like like a rock, which was a, a campaign for Chevy, and they, it was a Springsteen song, and they frequently, the ad agencies would say, you know, we want a song like that uh, Bruce Springsteen song, and somebody said, well, maybe, maybe he'd do it, and he said, course i'd be happy to sing that for you and boom everything changed (laughs) you know so the people who were writing songs like that went wait a minute that's the actual song shit we're in trouble but that was a major change uh what hasn't changed is it's still a hell of a lot of fun i like the people um particularly like doing the political stuff because they want it done and want it done fast a huge percentage of my clients and political work just send me the script they don't even direct they just say you know what to do which i take as a high compliment yeah you know it's just fun and you know that your skills are being used well and uh, and the 36 years pay off (laughs) being able to do that yeah, I mean, there's one of your ads that I, I actually play to people as an example of a, you know, a, a beautiful delivery, and it's the, the car that built America, the Jeep campaign you did. Thank you. Some people might not find this a compliment, but I did. Um, during the last political season, uh, there was a classic kind of thing that I get a lot of. It's negative, but it's not, I'm really yelling. I'm a yelling kind of voice and like that stuff, and I'm usually frequently disappointed. In, in what they did. And it's kind of a voice of reason saying, you've been in Congress for 46 years. 46 years is too long. And you're just talking. So he sent me a script and he said, hey, Harlan, I need this tomorrow morning by nine. Uh, you know, when I write scripts like this, I always think of you. Nobody does disdain like Harlan. <laughs> 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 That's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. Well, it is. I mean, it's like, okay, so that's the brand with him. And he knows I'll be disdainful, and that's what he wants. <laughs> yeah, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it beats working. I'll tell you, it beats working. It does. Well, Harlan Hogan, once again, it's been an absolute pleasure. Great stories. Love it. Um, if anybody wants to buy some good gear, you know where to go, voiceover essentials. And if you need uh, a great voiceover, Harlan Hogan's the man. Always delightful to talk to you. Now you can go and have a cocktail or go for a ride on your motorbike. Me? Well, actually, that's a great line. We should go on a great line where my wife and I were driving to a charity event that we had to go to. And some spots ran for Anheuser-Busch, you know, the big brewing company here. I have just the tag on these radio spots. And they've run them for a couple of years. So one of them is running. And uh, Leslie's, you know, getting her makeup on or whatever, and I'm driving, and at the end, my voice comes on, and 
you know, I say, Anheuser-Busch, St. Louis, Missouri, please drink responsibly. And she turns to me and said, you, you are telling people to drink responsibly? <laughs> said, Honey, somebody's got to do it. <laughs> I drink responsibly. I lie down before I start. There you go. Good man. Yeah. Uh, off to my martini. Thanks, my friend. I really enjoyed talking with you. It's been a pleasure again. Thank you very much for your time and uh, all the best. Okay, you too. Cheers. The voice for the voices. This is the VO Radio Show. Well, there you go. That's Harlan Hogan and uh, a fascinating guy. And I, the story about how he came up with the uh, Porter Booth Pro is a cracker. Yeah, absolutely. BBC World War Two. Who would have thought? <laughs> Who would have thunk it? <laughs> indeed, indeed. That's it. Hogan's a hero. Yes, he is. A, <laughs> yes, he, oh, he's going to love that one as well. Now, next week, we've been on either side of the glass and we've been into mm-hmm. music studios and voiceover studios, but uh, yep. next week, we're going to get the agent's point of view. And our Ooh, okay. special guest is from Fox USA, Wes Stevens. All right, well, that sounds like a good one. Have yourself a good week. Indeed. See you next week. Lovely. The VO Radio Show is produced in the studios of Voodoo Sound. To polish your next audio production, check us out at voodoo-sound.com. Find professional voices simply all in one place. Realtimecasting.com, including me.